0: Hey podcast family, not long ago I did a podcast on oligohydramnios and the value in select cases for IV hydration. So I thought in this episode we would do the rebuttal of oligohydramnios, or I guess the counterpart, which is polyhydramnios. So in this episode we're going to attack the causes, the workup, and the management of polyhydramnios. life is too short and too unpredictable to go through without some sort of vision or passion. If you don't know what your passion is, find it now. This is our passion. This is Clinical Pearls. In the previous podcast where we covered oligohydramnios, we talked about the formation of amniotic fluid. Basically, in the first part of pregnancy, the amniotic fluid is mainly composed of transudative fluid across the chorion and the amnion. But in the latter half of pregnancy, an increasing contribution to amniotic fluid is made from fetal urine production. Later on in pregnancy, even though fetal urine production is the primary source of amniotic fluid, there's other contributors as well. Not only is the chorion and the amnion small contributors to the amniotic fluid, but so is fetal lung fluid and fetal oral and nasal secretions, but obviously to a lower extent than fetal urine production. The term polyhydramnios, also known as hydramnios, refers to excessive amounts of amniotic fluid. Remember that the main routes of amniotic fluid removal are fetal swallowing and absorption via the intramembranous pathway. The overall incidence of polyhydramnios is around 0.2 to 2% of all pregnancies. This is more common in twins, likely due to the complication of monochorionic placentation idiopathic polyhydramnios can still occur in about 1% of all pregnancies. Remember, idiopathic is not in twins, not in maternal diabetes, and no other overt source can be found causes of polyhydramnios are varied and account for various percentages of cases. For example, idiopathic polyhydramnios, in other words, just not otherwise explained, actually is the majority of polyhydramnios, accounting for 50 to 60 percent of cases. Congenital anomalies, mainly of the GI tract, also, account for about 8 up to 45% of cases, and in this group, this is also where genetic disorders live. Another contributor is maternal diabetes, accounting for about 5 to 26% of polyhydramnios. Multiple gestations account for 8 to 10%, and fetal anemia accounts for the remainder, about 1 to 11%. Yes, I know, those percentages don't add up to 100, but that's okay because there's such big, broad categories that that's why there are ranges. The important thing is to remember that, no joke, the biggest cause of polyhydramnios is actually idiopathic. Then the next biggest category is congenital anomalies or genetic disorders, followed by maternal diabetes, then comes multiple gestation, and then the last percentage or the smallest cohort is fetal anemia. All right, now let's talk about diagnosis. Remember that there's two commonly used sonographic measurements that are used to determine the volume of amniotic fluid, the Amniotic Fluid Index, or the AFI, and my favorite, the MVP, which is Maximal Vertical Pocket, or the Single Deepest Pocket. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Now if you're getting ready to do your oral boards, you know you're going to be asked these numbers because it's a staple of obstetrics. For AFI, remember that the normal range is 8 to 24, with on the lower spectrum 5 to 8 being borderline and less than 5 being oligohydramnios. On the opposite end, which is our podcast topic of excessive fluid, an AFI greater than 24 is qualifies for polyhydramnios. But remember, poly is also graded, mild, moderate, and severe, and we're gonna get into that in just a minute. If you're using the MVP, the maximum vertical pocket, then it's a single measurement greater than or equal to eight centimeters. Alright, now here's a shout out to the MVP, the maximal vertical pocket, or the single deepest pocket, because that is preferred by Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine in the third trimester. And it's also preferred by ACOG. ACOG does state, quote, the best available evidence supports using the deepest vertical pocket method of measurement of fluid because it leads to fewer interventions with no increase in poorer perinatal outcomes compared with use of the AFI. Now let's grade the severity of poly based on our measurements, starting first with AFI. If the AFI is between 24 to 29.9, that's considered mild polyhydramnios. If the AFI is from 30 to 34, that's considered moderate polyhydramnios, and severe poly is an AFI greater than or equal to 35. Everybody good? So 24 to 30 is mild, moderate is 30 to 34, and then greater than 35 is severe. Using the maximal vertical pocket, an 8 to 11 measurement is mild poly, a 12 to 15 centimeter measurement is is moderate poly, and severe poly with a maximal vertical pocket is a measurement greater than 16. Alright, so MVP, 8 to 11 mild, 12 to 15 moderate, and greater than 16 is severe poly. Now here's a clinical pearl. There is some evidence that increasing severity of poly correlates with an increased risk of perinatal mortality and the chance of finding congenital anomalies. Now let's walk down this management algorithm. You've just diagnosed your patient with polyhydramnios of some severity. Well, what's next? Well, the next thing is to try to find a cause. Remember, you must do a detailed anatomical survey to rule out some gross or sonographically evident congenital anomaly. Also consider a workup to rule out alloimmunization, look for a congenital infection, and make sure that you've done an appropriate screen for maternal diabetes. Remember that the diagnosis of idiopathic polyhydramnios is one of exclusion and patients have to be made aware that even after a quote negative end quote workup, there still may be an underlying cause that's identified following delivery. Now also remember that it's a good idea to assess for fetal growth because there is an association between macrosomia and polyhydramnios. By the way, if the opposite is found, if there's suspected fetal growth restriction, then that is something abnormal because remember that FGR fetal growth restriction usually is associated with oligohydramnios. So in the case of fetal growth restriction with polyhydramnios, that may be a flag to look for single gene or other chromosomal abnormalities. For example, trisomy 13 or 18 has been linked to FGR with polyhydramnios. All right, podcast family, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about management. So let's talk about amnio in two different ways, okay? We're gonna talk about amniocentesis for a workup and amnioreduction. Remember, totally different. So if you ever asked on the oral board, would you do an amnio for poly? Well, then you have to clarify, do you mean amniocentesis or amnioreduction? There's no data to support amniocentesis just for isolated polyhydramnios. However, if there are additional findings on ultrasound or there's altered growth as we just mentioned like fetal growth restriction, then amnio is something that can be considered to rule out some other genetic cause. Now remember that ACOG and SMFM guidelines state that invasive testing should be made available to all women and you shouldn't have to wait for an abnormality to offer it. It used to be that those women who were over 35 qualified for diagnostic testing, but remember that all women should be offered diagnostic testing as well as screening for genetic issues. Okay, that's amniocentesis, but what about amnioreduction? Well, SMFM recommends against amnioreduction, except in the presence of severe poly where the patient just can't breathe. And in that case, it's done only for maternal rest, for maternal discomfort, and or dyspnea, okay? So if you're asked on the oral boards, would you draw fluid out? Well, only if she can't breathe or lie down, for heaven's sakes. I mean, have some compassion. But it is reserved for severe recalcitrant poly with maternal symptomatology. Well, that's an invasive procedure, but what about indocin, indomethacin? Well, indocin is not recommended for the sole purpose of decreasing amniotic fluid, because there are some increased neonatal risks. Like, although it can give you decreased urine production, it can result in elevated serum creatinine. It's also been associated with intraventricular hemorrhage, periventricular leukomalacia, and necrotizing enterocolitis. So stay away from endocin just for poly treatment. Now, what about antepartum fetal surveillance? Well, ACOG states that antepartum fetal surveillance is not required for the sole indication of mild idiopathic polyhydramnios. However, it is an ACOGS committee opinion on indications for outpatient fetal surveillance from June of 2021 that if the patient has moderate to severe polyhydramnios, then antipartum fetal surveillance can begin at 32 to 34 weeks gestation. Again, 32 to 34 weeks gestation for moderate to severe polyhydramnios. Well, what about induction of labor? Well, here's where it gets kind of sticky, because according to ACOG's committee opinion, the timing of delivery for mild, idiopathic poly shouldn't change. The recommendation is still to be full term at 39 weeks and 0 days or beyond. However, it's weird that it only mentions mild, idiopathic poly. There is some expert opinion, not in ACOG's committee opinion, but expert opinion states that if the patient is just so severely polyhydramnios that she can't even breathe, then for maternal comfort, for maternal relief, you could intervene as early as 36 to 37 weeks. But again, that's expert opinion. And it is kind of weird that the committee opinion from ACOG only mentions timing of delivery for mild idiopathic and makes zero comment for moderate or severe. And I guess it wanted to stay clear of any controversy. Okay, fine, that's ACOG, but what about SMFM? Well, SMFM's console series number 46 from 2018 also kind of stays clear of that topic. It only mentions avoidance of induction under 39 weeks in cases of mild idiopathic poly, just like ACOG. Here's the SMFM quote, quote, We recommend that labor should be allowed to occur spontaneously at term for women with mild idiopathic polyhydramnios, and that induction, if planned, should not occur less than 39 weeks of gestation in the absence of other indications. And that's where the expert opinion comes in, that the other indication is maternal discomfort, maternal inability to sleep, or even lie down. So that's where it gets kind of gray. SMFM continues, quote, and that mode of delivery should be determined based on usual obstetric indications, end quote. Well, that makes sense. Just because you have poly doesn't mean you're going to c-section them. But once again, both ACOG and SMFM only state that induction should not occur under 39 weeks for mild idiopathic poly, no mention about moderate or severe. Alright podcast family, that brings us to a wrap Listen, I've had a long day If you follow our Facebook page, I'm taping this on the same day that we did our resident and nursing simulations That just wore me out I mean, it was a long, hectic, stressful day And it was completely worth it But nothing like wrapping up a day at, oh, almost 11pm at night by doing a podcast Why? Because it's what we do as always, we're thankful for you. I got to tell you, I get your messages through Facebook. Thank you for that. It really does make me smile. I love answering you all's questions. Please keep it going so that we can encourage each other and build each other up. Keep doing what you're doing, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.